powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello! Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. That's right. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. Before we jump into the episode, though, I want to say a huge thank you to my last guest, Dallas Dupree Young. What a remarkable young man, and the episode was so incredibly well-received. Hell, I might even go back this weekend and watch the last season of Cobra Kai again. If you haven't had a chance to listen to this great interview, I strongly encourage you to listen to it after the conclusion of this episode. And Dallas, if you're listening, thank you so much again for coming on the show. You, sir, are destined for great things. All right, welcome to episode 147, and we have a great, fantastic episode lineup for you today. We have on the show Clifford Ismay, who was a descendant of one of the most wrongfully vilified men in history, J. Bruce Ismay, the president of the White Star Line that commissioned the legendary, ill-fated ship RMS Titanic. Mr. Ismay was a passenger on that fateful voyage, and after striking the iceberg and learning that the ship would indeed founder, Ismay, according to records, worked to save many women and children before he took the last seat in a lifeboat. Surviving the sinking made him public enemy number one, and our guest, Cliff Ismay, has written a book, Understanding J. Bruce Ismay, the true story of the man they called the coward of the Titanic. So lots to discuss, so let's get Cliff out here. Duval Nation, please join me in welcoming to the show, calling in today from Workington, England, Mr. Clifford Ismay. Cliff, good morning. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How is the weather out by you today? Oh, you know, it's not a bad day today. It's about, around about 10 degrees uh, centigrade, which I think for you guys over there would be equivalent to maybe 50 Fahrenheit. Overcast, dry, but tolerable. So I start my interviews off the same way, and that is, how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 world up to this point? Oh, now then, COVID-19, well, I guess I was like probably most of the people, uh, masks, wash hands, etc., etc. Um, I think I turned a lot to online shopping at that particular time. I uh, spent a lot of time helping friends and neighbours that couldn't do the same. I would get shopping in for them online, and I'd be happy to deliver from to the doors if they couldn't get out. So, yeah, I, I think on the whole, as a family, I think we fared through it pretty well. So every journey has a beginning. Where were you born? What was it like to grow up there? So I, I was born where I am now in Workington. Um, and, you know, a lovely place. It's an industrial town. Uh, it's declined over the years, but then it was a very busy industrial town. And, yeah, as kids, I was born in 1955. So in those days, of course, kids used to go out and play on the streets. We used to play ball games all the time it was a lovely place to grow up in very friendly with it being a small town 
all the neighbours were great. So, so yeah, it was, it was a nice place to grow up in. So you were born about 10 years after the end of the Second World War. What was it like to grow up in post-war England at that time? Well, of course, you never really knew much about it then. My father was, was in the RAF. Apart from that and apart from him uh, touring uh, Egypt and the Middle East uh, during the war, he never really spoke much about the war. I suppose he's seen some horrific things, and I guess those those people who didn't like to speak about it. So, yeah, I mean, it was a growing town. A lot of towns were growing at that time, and it was vibrant. It, it was a good time to be alive, I think. Hmm. So you have a very unique connection to probably one of the most documented historical tragedies of the last 150 years, and I believe you are the fifth cousin once removed from the director of the White Star Line, Jay Bruce's May, the White Star Line being the shipping firm that commissioned RMS Titanic. At what point did you realize that you were related to this gentleman? Now, that's an interesting story. So going back to when I was about eight years old, I was in the sitting room with my father watching TV. And I think it was the 1953 film. No, it was A Night to Remember. Mm -hmm. uh, the film about Titanic came on TV black and white, of course, in those days. And I was in awe when I saw this huge ship sailing across the North Atlantic. I said to my father, wow, look at that big ship. He said to me, you know, son, you're related to the guy that owned that ship. Well, of course, Bruce is may never actually owned the Titanic, but for an eight-year-old, it was, it was cool enough. And that's when I first became aware of it, I think. Hmm. So you have commissioned a book, which is called Understanding J. Bruce has Made, the true story of the man they called the coward of the Titanic. What inspired you to put pens and paper to write this book? So I never believed in a million years that I would end up writing a book. But in in recent years, I I would meet people uptown or in shops and say, ask the name, is always me. Are you related to the coward of the Titanic? And of course, my answer would be, well. You know, I don't believe there were any cowards aboard the Titanic. But I would hear that quite a lot, so that got me thinking, why does everyone think that Bruce was the coward of the Titanic? And I, I did a little bit of research, and I found, I found that, yeah, I could see why people were thinking that, but I wondered if the stories were true. So I began to do my own research, and based on the British and American inquiries and based on some some new first-hand information that came to light for me I began to re realize that these stories that they really just weren't true there was a lot more to the story about Bruce's mayor than really a lot of people realized I thought you know someone should write a book about that mm. and I thought well hey who better than the relation of Bruce <laughs> so that brought me to the place where I am now it is highly documented that he put himself in one of the last lifeboats after he saw no other women and children survive the sinking and was villainized by the entire world. Now, explain why and how your book challenges that interpretation of those events. Well, of course, it's not just the fact that he got into the last lifeboat. He was blamed for ordering Captain Smith to make the ship go faster at quick Atlantic crossing. I found that wasn't true. In fact, I found quite the reverse was true. Bruce never interfered with the captain at all. Well, in fact, he was an opponent of speed, to be honest. 
Uh, there's absolutely no no evidence to suggest that he did want uh, Titanic to make a record crossing, and there is evidence to suggest to the contrary. As far as the lifeboats go, well, it's well documented now, but going back lots of years, there were lots of stories about him dressing up in women's clothing to, to get into one of the life, first lifeboats. There were other stories of him just jumping into one of the first lifeboats, leave the ship anywhere. So I, I thought, well, what was the truth? I found, yes, he did get into the last lifeboat, but he was responsible for saving countless lives before he did that. And the circumstances be, behind him getting into the lifeboat was probably, I think it was a split-second decision. After years of research, you know, and relying on testimony, Ismay did everything in his power to assist with the evacuation of Titanic, as you say. What do you think was going through his mind when he took that last seat? Uh, that's a big question. I felt, I think perhaps he, he felt that he, he may well stay on the ship, but then maybe what was in his mind right at the very last moment was, well, hey, I've done everything I can to save, save people on board. There are no other women and children around. And hey, there, there's that lifeboat being lowered with, I think there was about five spare seats in it. So he had a split second decision. Would he stay on board the ship and go down with the ship? Or would he take the chance to save his own life, knowing that he'd done every, everything else that he could? Had he not got into that lifeboat, then no one else would have been saved. And it would have only added one more life to the list of those that were lost. Mm. So I, I think it would have been a very difficult decision. I have heard rumours right at the very last moment that he was ordered into the lifeboat by one of the ship's officers. That may be true because what a lot of people don't realize is when Bruce entered that lifeboat, he was actually entering as an oarsman. He was required to row that lifeboat to the safety of Carpathia along with several other crew members. So I think even when he did get into the lifeboat, he was still doing his bit. You know, it's amazing. Uh, when we were doing research for this uh, interview, we were reading other things such as people who they wish had survived, including, you know, the architect and, and creator of the ship. So he give more, you know, expert details to the to the inquiries. I think it's fascinating. Like I said, you know, after the rescue of Carpathia and then the board of inquiry, you know, what does anybody say to him? What, you know, what is an insight into his psychological mental state? I think his mental state at the time of boarding that lifeboat, I think he'd probably be pretty numb like, I dare say most of the passengers on Titanic, to say the least. Afterwards, when he saved by the Carpathia, I think he entered into a state of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, as again, I'm sure lots of other survivors would have been. Of course, PSTD wasn't a known condition at that time. It only came to light around about the... 1960s, 1970s, I believe. But the doctor of the Carpathia did realise that there was a problem. Um, he was offered soup, like everyone else, uh, by the Carpathia. And all, the only words anyone could get out of him was, I would rather not, I would rather not. So it was obviously in a state of deep mental depression at that time. I believe he was given opiates on, in the doctor's cabin aboard the Carpathia. Which, which is something I, I think he needed them, but I, I, I think also that there were a lot of other passengers that could have also benefited from the same service if, if they wished. And I think this is something that probably stayed with him for maybe several years after the Titanic sinking. Mm. 
in your opinion, was it the fact that he was the highest ranking, you know, official of the White Star Line to survive the reason he was, you know, all of it was basically blame put on his shoulders? I think a lot of blame was put on his shoulders. I mean, had he chose to go down with the ship, perhaps people would have seen it differently. But because Bruce was on board the ship as a passenger, he wasn't a member of crew, but he was still president of the International Mercantile Marine, the Burton Company. And someone had to be blamed for what had happened. Obviously, we couldn't blame Smith. Uh, Captain Smith, he went down with the ship. Thomas Andrews, well, we couldn't blame him. But, you know, I don't think he had anything to, to be blamed for. He did a marvellous job. So, yeah, I think it was just he was there and people wanted to to vent their anger out with Bruce. Mm. To the point, to the end of his life, it seemed as though Ismay had what I would call survivor guilt. What sort of life did he lead post-disaster? Not the life that a lot of people believe. A lot of stories say that he retired from the White Star Line as a result of the Titanic disaster, and he let, led the life of a recluse afterwards until the day of his death. wasn't quite true. Bruce actually organised his retirement about six months before Titanic sailed. But because there was a problem with his successor, he had to delay the, the his retirement until afterwards when his successor was ready to, to replace him. He didn't actually lead the life of a recluse. He did retire to Ireland, but that was always his plan. Uh, he loved fishing. He loved golf, and there was plenty of that in Ireland. I find it curious, though, that the, the majority of the passengers that died on board the ship that night were the third-class immigrants, and a lot of them, of course, would have been Irish. So he was going to retire in a place that he really wasn't very well liked at first, but people soon warmed him once they got to know him. He, he also uh, con continued with his business career, not in shipping, but he moved into the railways, which is always a love of his life, and he was director of the London and Northern Railway Company in, in the UK. Uh, he had directorships in other companies as well as insurance companies and the Manchester to Liverpool Shipping Canal. So he still kept an active life going. Uh, it just wasn't anything to do with transcontinental shipping. What has the reception of your book been like? I've had a good reception with the book. So the idea of the book is I don't want to persuade anyone to think one way or the other. I hope to give evidence for the reader to make their own decisions about Bruce in a, in the light of what they're now reading. And the vast majority of people that have gotten in touch with me have said that they now see Bruce in a different light. They didn't know a lot of what is in the book. And in balance, they don't now see him as a coward. Okay, Duval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will... Be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Clifford Ismay. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths. You know that's right, Cluzo style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Please give your attention to a few friends of my show and we will be right back. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated, and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podtastic Audio. 
My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is podcasting made easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podtasticaudio.com slash easy. Duval Nation, Derek and Mindy Duval here to talk about Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. The Derek Duval Show and Derek and Mindy's Fun With Movies is proud to be sponsored by the team at Jerky Pro. As a veteran, I am always the first to support veteran-owned businesses. Setting up shop in 1987 and founded by military and paramilitary veterans, they have set the bar for how beef jerky is processed, flavored, packaged, and sold. With strict quality control standards, Jerky Pro offers many flavors that are sure to please any beef jerky connoisseur. From the standard original flavor to honey glazed, peppered, teriyaki, sweet barbecue, or if you're brave enough, the fierce red hot, there are many flavors guaranteed to entice your palate. Offered in various sized packaging, use promo code DUBAL37, all in capital letters, at checkout to receive a 5% discount. Remember, folks, if your beef jerky is not making your mouth water, then it's not Jerky Pro Beef Jerky. Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. Hey, this is Patrick Baker, and you are listening to The Derek Duvall Show. Check out my new single, available on all major streaming platforms, and visit my site at patrickbakermusic.com. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts! Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Sometimes people have a story to tell. It could be a story of triumph or a story of sorrow. However, it's their story. It's important to keep their story authentic, in their own words, and delivered in a delicate way. That's where Unfiltered Discussions podcast comes in. I'm Brian Howard. I talk with my guests about tough subjects and pivotal moments. I'd love for you to hear their stories. Subscribe to Unfiltered Discussions on your favorite podcast platform. Let's ensure their stories are heard. Hey, it's Presley Tennant, and you're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can find my brand new EP, 600 Miles, on all streaming platforms right now. 
This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, a veteran's journey from homeless to hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 147 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with the author of the book, Understanding J. Bruce Ismay, the true story of the man they called the coward of the Titanic. Please welcome back Mr. Cliff Ismay. So you're basically a custodian of... Bruce's legacy, if that's a fair, I think that's a pretty fair observation. Do you go do speaking? Do you go around, you know, talking about, you know, Bruce's life? Do you go to like conventions or anything like that? I have done for a lot of years. I would go around to schools. I used to enjoy speaking in schools in the UK because at one time Titanic was part of the curriculum. That that was always good. I used to enjoy that. And the questions and answers. And I always remember one question that used to pop up more than any other with the younger children, the, the infants, the five to seven-year-olds, well, at least one of them will put their hand up and say, ask the question, Mr. Ismay, were you on board the Titanic? Well, I found <laughs> kind of humorous. But, yeah, I, I used to love doing that and going around historical groups, etc., cetera, et cetera. Um, Belfast, I was over there one year to the Titanic Convention, giving a talk about the Titanic. And now, of course, with the with the book being released, that's be the talks are becoming more and more popular. Why do you think the world has such a fascination for a ship that sank over 111 years ago? That, that again, is an interesting question. I think with Titanic, the thing was there was there were two classes of passengers, really. I'm not talking about first, second. I'm talking about the class of passenger that was using Titanic as a kind of a cruise. The the wealthy people who wanted to travel on board the largest, most luxurious ship at that time that had sailed the seas. And it was a pleasure cruise for them. Then there's the other class of passenger that were maybe migrating to, to America to with dreams and aspirations of beginning a new life over there. So I think with Titanic, there's something in the story for almost everyone. And I think that just feeds the fascination for it. Bruce Ismay has been portrayed by numerous actors in films about the Titanic sinking. As a, you know, as a member of late member of his family, is there one actor that stands above the rest that you're particularly fond of? I think possibly the most recent Cameron's 97 Titanic with um, with Jonathan Hyde. I think he was cast very well for the part. Obviously, as an actor, he he has to show Bruce in the way that he's directed to do so. 
But I think as, a, as an actor um, and a stature, I think he played the part of Bruce very, very well. Mm. I watched the one when we were doing the research for Heavy, we just happened to put, you know, on look at some of the actors and some of the parts. I didn't realize Sir Ian Holm played Ismay in a made for TV version of Titanic. I thought that was kind of interesting. I, I don't think I'm, I say that one. Been interesting that there have been so many films, documentaries, and mm-hmm. series made of Titanic. It's very difficult to keep in up to with all of them. But yeah. that would certainly be one I would like to look out for. Yeah. What was the, your family's reaction when the shipwreck was discovered in 85? Well, of course, I can only speak for myself. Unfortunately, my father wasn't around then. But I personally, I was pleased that they discovered the wreck because it, it gave a gravesite monument to all those that have died. So I, I thought that it was nice when they actually found it. In subsequent years, of course, the the site's been plundered, which personally I'm, I'm not actually in agreement with. I would like to to go there. I would like to throw down wreath flowers over the site, have a moment silence. But personally, going down to the wreck wouldn't be something that I would like to do. Mm. You know, it's funny you're about to say because I was about to ask the next question. You know, have you been out to the site of the sinking? Well, and, and this is just pure coincidence. You know how they always say, you know, whatever you type, you know, your computer's listening or whatever you want to call it. As soon as we started doing research for this interview. All of our ads on our YouTube was for a diving expedition to go out to the wreck. Uh, we so we happened to look it up: two hundred and fifty thousand American dollars to go to the wreck and dive down to see to see the wreckage. And I'm like, who's got two hundred fifty thousand dollars just lying around somewhere? So it's a lot of money to pay. Some people do have that money laying around, mm-hmm. and they can do it at a moment's notice. I remember hearing one girl. I can't remember her name now. I think she was maybe British, but since she learned about the Titanic when she was a little girl, she made it a lifetime ambition to to visit the wreck. And she saved and she saved, not ever believing that she would ever be able to get down there. But when she heard about these um, dives down to Titanic that you could pay money for with the new Ocean Gate uh, dives, she she got in there and she she'd saved enough money and she managed to book a place and she was absolutely thrilled. Now I don't think she was one that wanted to. She didn't want to take anything from the wreck. I don't think that that particular company does that. But she was in awe at just going around looking at the wreck itself. I saw her on being interviewed and her eyes were just full of tears talking about it. So I think. It, can be a very emotional thing for some people. And as far as I'm aware, she didn't have relatives or anything on it. She was just fascinated by the wreck. It's, again, like I said, when I was in the United States Navy, there was a gentleman, he operated the um, submarine tender. So if we're like, we lost a, an aircraft, we'd go down and destroy it. He was, in, he was in charge of that. Anyway, he had dived Titanic about 10 years prior. And it was in, we were, you know, everybody's in the bond, just gathered around him. He's telling stories and what have you. And, to say to you is, you know, have you got another book in you? What's next for you? I'm not working on another book at the moment because uh, th- this one is going so so well. I'm finding all my free time now is down to promoting the book and answering people's questions about it because I don't just want to sell the book. I want to be there for readers to feed back to as well if they have any questions that, that they would like to ask me. So I do devote a lot of time to that. But, yes, I, I am thinking of writing... Uh, a series of books about various Titanic passengers, uh, possibly Evelyn Marsden, who was mentioned in my book. 
I think that is a fascinating story. She she was on board the Olympics. She survived the sister ship Olympics uh, collision with HMS Hawk. Um, and the ship's doctor that was on board at the time, uh, Dr. Rick William James, he took a bit of a liking to her and the kind of couple together at that time. And they, all, they always wanted to, to wed uh, in years to come and the plan to travel Titanic together. But at a last minute change, Dr. James was rerouted to another ship. So Evelyn Marsden was on Titanic herself as a first-class steward slash nurse, if needed, which was a profession. And Bruce, Bruce helped to get off that, that ship in lifeboat number 16. And when she returned to England, her husband returned, quickly married, and they wanted to go back to Australia, which was the home of Evelyn Marsden. They wanted to start a new life, but they didn't have the money to do it. So Mr. James contacted Bruce. He wrote him a letter, which I have a copy of in my possession. It's transcribed in the book. And he'd asked Bruce if he could allow his wife to work a passage back to Australia as a nurse slash stewardess on one of the ships and he would pay his own passage. That was the only way they could get over. Bruce actually arranged for, for both of them to work the passage back over there. I think it's a fascinating story and maybe, maybe, spoiler alert, there may be a book coming out before too long about Miss Marsden. That's awesome. With the movie, uh, the 1997 Titanic, James Cameron's movie, came out again this weekend. Has there been renewed interest in the book? Yes, the the, the has. It's when any, any Titanic event comes comes around. Uh, certainly with Cameron's movie being re-released, yeah. Obviously, it's the same movie, but it's been enhanced digitally. And yeah, it piques interest again. People start looking for Titanic books. Again, in April, when it's it's another anniversary, it will peak again. So, yeah, the, the, the interest in Titanic literature excels when it comes to anything like that. So I always like to ask one fun question as we enter the final phase of this interview. And, uh, you know, when you're not speaking and writing, what do you like to do for fun? How do you relax? Well, as I said earlier, I live on the edge of the English Lake District, which is a very beautiful place. So weather permitting, I like to... To go out there, it's only a few miles away, go out there with my camera on my shoulder, walk over the hilltops and take photographs. And, you know, it, it's lovely when you get on top of some of those hills. It's so so quiet, so peaceful. All you can hear is the occasional sheep braying or the, the gentle breeze going over the tops of the mountains. And it's a beautiful place to be. And when I want a bit of peace, that is my go-to place. So what would be the best way for my listeners to follow, you know, what you've got going on, find information about the book and so forth? Okay, so you can find me in two places on Facebook. You can find me as Cliffy's Mayor, uh, which is my main page, or if they want more information about the book, there is a page for understanding Jay Bruce's Mayor on Facebook. I also have a page on Instagram, Ismay underscore Titanic. Also on, on Twitter, and LinkedIn, you'll find me there under my my author's name, Clifford Ismay. Awesome. So I end my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of Earth? You know, my father was an astronomer, and I would say to people, 
reach out for the stars, but also take a moment to reach out for each other and be there for your friends and family when needed. We're all part of this great planet and let's make it as nice a place as we can. Awesome. The book is Understanding J. Bruce Ismay, The True Story of the Man They Called the Coward of the Titanic, available for purchase on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Cliff, congratulations on the book, and all my best for your future endeavors. I thank you. It's been a pleasure. And just like that, Devon Nation, we come to the end of episode 147. I want to thank Cliff for taking the time to come on the show today, conversing with Cliff about one of the most interesting pieces of history was a sheer delight for me. Fun fact about me that not a lot of people know is there are two things in this world I can draw very well. Well, three, but stick figures don't really count. But I can draw sharks incredibly well. And for some reason I can't explain, I can also draw the Titanic. My parents couldn't even explain that gift, but here we are. And I want to thank my teachers from an early age, encouraging me to keep drawing the Titanic over and over and over again. I've got some in a box somewhere. Maybe I might post one or two on my Instagram feed for you guys to check out. Anyway, regardless, thanks again, Cliff, for coming on the show and talking with me. And I cannot wait for James Cameron to drop Titanic on 4K ultra high definition very, very soon. I'm really, really pissed I missed it in theaters, but alas, life got in the way. Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really, really good one coming up in a few days. So be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have. So please go hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, and I say this all the time and I really do mean it, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. All right, we are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tee Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there, and with everything without a logo on it, including mugs, stickers, and magnets. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, go to the banner on the left that says Merch, click that, and you will be taken to our store on Tee Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, you know, I'm seeing a lot of angry and sad people on the Derek Duvall Show social media feeds lately. Folks, if social media is making you so upset, take a break. Take a break from social media for a few days. It will help everyone get a nice mental health break from all the politics, religion, and hate speech out there. What do you say, folks? Sounds good to me, right? No star, God bless. And see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.